Welcome to Under the Oaks. I'm Lauren Thompson. And I'm Pastor Trent Sari. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, we're coming to you live from WKLC Studios. Uh, right at the front here, I just want to say thank you to our listeners who have made us the number one church-related podcast on all of Church Street in Pleasant Springs, Wisconsin. And you people are awesome. We're picking up on a discussion that we began last time on the Ten Commandments. We talked about Commandments 1 through 3. We called it the first table of the law, dealing with our relationship with God. Today we're going to look at Commandments 4 through 6. As we, as we think about Commandments 4 through 10, really, we're talking about the second table of the law. And so we might want to summarize those last seven commandments or the second table of the law according to the way the scriptures themselves do it. As Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself and even love your enemies. So obviously, the second table of the law deals with our relationship with our neighbor. And by neighbor, we mean all people, including even our enemies. The last seven commandments, as we'll see, demand perfect love from every one of us toward all people. And of course, that's impossible, for sinners at least. The fourth commandment. Uh, The fourth commandment is one I think that I grew up thinking, oh, this isn't so complicated. It seems pretty straightforward. Honor your father and your mother, that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Uh, So, you know, respect your parents, right? That seems to be the, the gist of it. But as you can guess, as we've seen with the other commandments thus far, When we start to plumb the scriptures and to see just how broad this commandment and everything that it includes, we see that there's a lot more to it. So what is the meaning of the fourth commandment? There's a few verses that we're going to look at here. Now, this first one is, is probably one of my favorite ones. I make all my confirmation students learn it, memorize it, and you'll see why. It's, It's just wonderful. Proverbs 30. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by vultures. That sounds kind of nasty. <laughs> Pretty graphic. Yeah. Uh, the kids always love that one. Uh, so, well, you, you should memorize this one by heart and, and remember this one. Take it to heart, right? There you go. Obviously, the point there is is not, if you disobey your parents, you got to watch out for the ravens because they're going to be after your eyes. But the point there that is made very graphically and certainly clearly is that God expects us to obey and respect and honor our parents. Uh, They're they're given to us for our good. And so that would be, you know, part one of the fourth commandment. Honor your parents, obviously. This is what God wants from us. It's God-pleasing. It's for our good. Now, the second verse is from... Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 13, verse 2, and this takes a little different direction. It says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who will resist will incur judgment. So now we're talking about the governing authorities here. I mean, all of those that God has placed over us, and as we think about that, There are many, whether we talk about the home where parents are placed over us or our jobs where we have bosses or managers who watch over us, or even as citizens, we have governing authorities who are to look out for us. And those things are generally for our good. It doesn't mean we always agree with those people or the decisions they make, but that authority is established for the good of all of humanity. Colossians 3, verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Notice that he doesn't say, in those things that are convenient for you, or in those things you want to do anyways. It says, in everything. And that's really the part that goes against our sinful nature, isn't it? It's, it's this idea that it's not my will be done, that I need to respect and obey someone else, even if they're telling me to do something I don't want to do. And very often, this is the way that in our relationship with God, we're happy to to do things that please him when it's convenient for us. But there's other times where we just say, I don't want to, I don't want to do that, like children. 
Matthew chapter 22, verse 21, Jesus said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Obviously, here, you know, there's a distinction between church and state, if you will, a distinction. But the point there is even Jesus would say we are to be law-abiding citizens. If it's taxes, you pay your taxes. If there's laws, we obey the laws. First Peter chapter 2, Peter says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Again, that's, that's the difficult part for us. I mean, it's nice to be nice to people who are nice to us. It's easy to like people who like us, but people who don't like us, or especially if we have to work with those people or work for those people, that makes it a little bit more difficult. But yet God says, even there, uh, be subject to your authorities, whether it's your boss or your parents or uh, the governing authorities. That is, except, as we see in the book of Acts, we must obey God rather than men. So, if somebody tells us to do something contrary to God's will, then we have the right to do otherwise. Otherwise, we are to respect those that God has placed in authority over us, those that he's established for our good. And I think I've, I've mentioned this before, virtually every sphere of our lives, God has established order for our good. So, in the family, who's in charge? The children or the parents? Parents. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. In the school, who's in charge, the students or the teachers? Today or 20 years ago? <laughs> yeah, uh, this is kind of a trick question. <laughs> uh, teachers. Teachers. Ding, ding, ding. Yes. So, you know, these, these things are pretty self-obvious. You know, in our societies, in our, in our um, you know, states and communities that we live, do we get the option of just breaking whatever laws we want? Or are we as citizens supposed to obey that? Even if we don't, we are under the danger of fines or even imprisonment. So obviously these things are not optional for us. They're for our good. And we may not agree all the time. We might work to change some of those things or whatever it might be in terms of our laws and whatever. But the point is, is we don't get the right to just sort of willy-nilly pick and choose as we see fit. So unless somebody tells us to do something contrary to what God tells us to do, and then we have the right to obey God. In fact, we must obey God rather than men. So from, from the fourth commandment, we learn that we should not despise or disobey our parents or really any others whom God has placed over us in the home, the church, the state, at school, or at the place where we work. Rather, we should, remember we're always talking about a negative and a positive side to these commandments, Here's the positive side, the things that we should do according to the fourth commandment. We should honor our superiors as God's representatives and willingly obey them in all things in which God has placed them over us. So that's the fourth commandment. As we move on to the fifth commandment, this is one that is often misunderstood, I think. It says, you shall not kill I oftentimes say, well, maybe it would be better rendered, you shall not murder, because that really gets more to the meaning of the fifth commandment. You know, speaking of meaning, what is the meaning of the fifth commandment? And again, this one seems pretty straightforward, right? I mean, uh, yeah, well, I haven't killed anybody, so this one I think I've pretty much kept. Well, let's see. Genesis 9-6, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So killing, indiscriminate killing, is wrong according to the scriptures. We don't get the right to play God and say, I don't think that person deserves to live, therefore I will make sure that they die. And that would be really the definition of murder, right? I mean, just basically on my own whim, I decided that person is not worthy of life, therefore I'm going to kill them. That would be obviously wrong. And I don't think anybody in, in the entire world or in any culture basically would disagree with that. I mean, if they did, you'd have quite a crazy world that we would live in. Matthew 26, verse 52, Jesus said, all who take the sword will perish by the sword. So, obviously, we should not do or, or say anything that might 
shorten or embitter a person's life. St. Paul says in Romans chapter 13, the government is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So we see that God has given the government the authority to punish evildoers, to punish wrongdoers. And even if necessarily uh, the punishment fit the crime, that's kind of what the eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth idea is, that the punishment should fit the crime. If somebody murders somebody, then the government has the right to enact the death penalty. I know a lot of people think that that's wrong, but no, Scripture has given the government that authority to punish evildoers, even if necessary, to take their lives. And again, this would not be murder, would it? Because remember, murder by definition is me as an individual saying, I don't think that person has the right to live, therefore I'm going to take their life. Here, for the good of order and society, evil is punished. It's a deterrent for some who would maybe consider that, but also the punishment should fit the crime. Romans chapter 12, Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So revenge, I think, is something that kind of comes naturally to us as sinful human beings. If somebody does us wrong, our gut reaction is to repay them with something just as wrong. Somebody says an unkind word to you, you turn around and probably say an unkind word to them. Somebody, you know, uh, shakes their fist at you as they drive down the highway, you probably will shake your fist back at them or, you know, have some choice words for them. That's just the, the gut reaction of the sinful nature. Obviously, this is not good. If somebody's angry, we don't repay anger with anger. That doesn't seem to get anywhere. It only escalates the problem. So we leave vengeance to the Lord. He sees all that is going on, and at the end of the day, not necessarily in this life, but justice will be served. So it's not our uh, our right or job to punish people just based on our own whims or ideas. 1 John 3, verse 15, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Wait a second. Wait a second here, John. Uh, Well, he's basically echoing what Jesus himself would say, you know, that sin is a problem of the heart. You might say, well, I've never committed adultery. And Jesus would say, well, if you've ever looked at anyone lustfully, you've committed adultery with them in your heart. Here you might say, well, I've never murdered anyone. And John would say, guess what? Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That's kind of a, um, a strong statement. Is there anyone among us who can say that they have never had a hateful thought or feeling towards another human being? No. No, not if we're being honest. I mean, I, I know a few people who would say, well, I've never done that. It's interesting, uh, you know, when I would have chapel with school children, sometimes I would ask them these questions. Have you ever had a hateful thought? And, you know, if you've never had a hateful thought, raise your hand and like, like most of them would raise their <laughs> yeah. hand because yeah. like, this is what they think that you, you want them to, you know, right. to say. And you say, well, now you're just lying to me. But no, obviously sin is a problem of the heart and we would all be guilty of this. And therefore we would also be guilty of breaking the fifth commandment. Romans chapter 12, verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. It's the old kind of kill him with kindness. So now obviously we're talking about the positive side. So we, we already know what is forbidden in this commandment. But now we're talking about what the positive side should be. So we, we don't repay evil with evil. Even our enemy, we, we, we would treat with kindness, respect, love, and so on. Ephesians chapter 4, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So we're going to come back to those positive sides in just a second, but I want to take a, you know, a summary of the negative side of this commandment. So what does it prohibit? What is the fifth commandment really getting to? Well, you know, primarily, obviously, it's not our right or duty to take another person's life. We call it murder. But obviously, murder could be pretty broad in 
today's society, murder would also include something like abortion. It's, it's a sad, sad commentary on our culture that thousands and thousands of babies are murdered every single day, and yet this is just kind of accepted. It's considered normal. And people want to talk about some lives mattering or, or specific lives mattering. The reality is if you are pro-abortion, you believe that some lives matter more than others. That's the sad, sad state of things. So, obviously, murder, abortion is murder. That would be prohibited. But here, even something like suicide. You know, people would say, well, what's so wrong about suicide? Historically, they've heard, all oh, the church says if you commit suicide, you automatically go to hell. You know, first of all, is that true? But uh, what's so bad about suicide? Ultimately, uh, I can't read the minds of somebody who's been in those positions or who's, who's gone through with it. But ultimately, it's that place of despair that says, God can't help me. My life is so bad that even he can't help me. And of course, that would be kind of the opposite of faith, wouldn't it? Faith would say, even if I have to bear struggles, you know, I know that God will see me through. His grace is sufficient for me. Uh, but in the case of suicide, it says, no, I, uh, you're also playing God in a certain sense. You know, God is the author of life. He decides when it starts and when it ends. And you're saying, nope, I'm, I'm going to end it now. It's a very selfish thing. Now, obviously, uh, there are times, you know, we can't make a blanket statement like people used to and just say, well, everybody who commits suicide automatically goes to hell. First of all, we don't know that. Only God knows what, what that reality is when a person dies. So we should not speak where we don't know what we're talking about. And certainly this would be one area. And we also have to acknowledge that there are times where uh, somebody is in, you know, battling with mental illness or, you know, a severe depression where they're not thinking with their right mind. Uh, this was a, you know, a sad thing a few years back. Uh, you know, one of our sister congregations, there was a, a gentleman who was always in church, was very, very regular in church, and uh, had been struggling with, with some things. And just out of the blue, it seemed he, he had committed suicide. It was interesting to see that community, community rally around that family. So, you know, Luther, I think, was one of those that brought it out and said, well, you know, we, we can't say that somebody automatically goes to hell if they commit suicide. First of all, we don't know that. Second of all, there could be reasons that they were not mentally stable. They were not in their right mind. No, you know, they, they wouldn't have done this if they were in their right mind, that kind of thing. So we don't say it's impossible for somebody who commits suicide to go to heaven. Although, in general, as I said, it is uh, an act of unbelief in a certain sense, saying, God can't help me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play God and take my life now. And for this reason, it's also, uh, you know, in our, in our modern day, there's a lot of talk about euthanasia. So when somebody wants to, to die at an old age, they say, well, you know, I'm tired, or I'm tired of suffering, therefore I want doctor-assisted suicide or whatever, and people say, well, that sounds, you know, reasonable if they want that and, you know, and it helps them avoid suffering, then, you know, what's so bad about it? It seems like humane. We do that to animals, don't we? We do that to dogs and cats. But again, think about what we're doing there. We're saying, my situation is too miserable. God can't help me. I'm going to play God and decide when life ends. And that's, that's the problem with these things. So, however... You know, those would be the kind of murder or killing that is forbidden. We didn't talk about this yet, but there is perhaps, and there is a reason I chose murder instead of killing, because there are times where we maybe are justified in killing. Now, that sounds like a, you know, a terrible statement to make, but it depends on your vocation. So, for instance, if you are in the military, and yes, Christians can be in the military, and you are fighting a war to liberate, I don't know, oppress people. We think about, uh, you know, fighting against Nazi Germany or something. And it's to save lives. Uh, there, there might be a time where the government has called upon you as an agent of the government to go and fight this war, and that might include killing of life. 
there we, we do not equate it with murder because it's not somebody individually saying, I'm going to take that person's life. I don't think they deserve to live. Now, obviously, we would have to have the discussion about just wars versus needless wars, that kind of thing. Perhaps an easier one would be to look at the job of a police officer. And I know that's kind of a hot button topic today, but there are plenty of times where a police officer is called upon to put his life in danger for the good or for the safety of others. You know, if there's a a deranged gunman in a mall somewhere, they may have to shoot that person to, to save the lives of innocent civilians around them. So there it would not be murder. He had not, you know, singled this person out and said, I don't think they deserve to live. He is there to protect and defend innocent civilians. So it's his job. He's not doing it on a personal vendetta. He's doing it because he's there to protect. So not all killing is murder. Therefore, you know, we have to be careful. Uh, That's why I said, I think it's better if we say you shall not murder. That's really getting to the heart of the fifth commandment. So uh, again, the, the fifth commandment would say, you know, that we should not do or say anything which may destroy, shorten, or embitter a person's life. So even our words can be you know, daggers, if you will, that we plunge into other people. Uh, we should not bear anger or hatred in our hearts against anyone. It's not good for them. It's not good for us. It is sinful. And on the positive side, we should, rather, we should help and befriend our neighbor in every need. And uh, we should be merciful, kind, and forgiving, even to our enemies. Now, again, if we look at the fifth commandment, and we're being honest, Who amongst us can say that they have kept the fifth commandment perfectly their entire life? No one. Lauren, why are you raising your hand over there? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know. I I try. I try. I I think I get close. Yeah. Yeah. I keep it a lot better than a lot of other people. That's right. You know, so. All right. So that brings us to everybody's favorite commandment to talk about it. And you guessed it. It's the sixth commandment. You know, this is the one that... uh, makes everyone blush, and yet it's obviously one of the the commandments that is the most abused and broken. It's sins against the sixth commandment that are promoted every single day in the movies we watch, in the music we listen to, in the TV shows we watch, all over the internet. Uh, This one gets trampled on all over the place, and even by professing Christians. So let's talk about it. You shall not commit adultery. Bum, 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 bum. I suppose a, a, dis, a discussion of adultery should first begin with Adam and Eve and what we would say the first, first marriage, Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So, you know, here we have the first, if we want to call it marriage. It's by God's design. It's God's doing. He's the one who brings Eve to Adam. So this is a God-pleasing thing. As we, as we look at defining marriage, I think we have to be specific as to the details that the scriptures give us, because especially in our society, I think it's been, the, the edges have been rounded off of it to the point where even Christians oftentimes are confused about, well, what is exactly marriage? And why can't that over there be marriage? And why, you know, uh, we look at our, our culture or our society as redefining marriage and has done that in the last how many years, and continues to, to look at this issue. So, uh, by definition, we would say a marriage is a holy estate. It's 
established and instituted by God himself, as we, we saw here in these verses. Obviously, we have reference to a man and a woman. That will become important. Uh, the idea of becoming one flesh, I think, is, is uh, you know, there's multiple aspects of that that we'll talk about here in a second. But at this point, I would just say, you know, there's a union here uh, that, that goes beyond a mere arrangement. It's not just a contract or an agreement, a piece of paper, as a lot of people want to call marriage. The two become one. And that's a profound mystery. In some ways, it it is a picture, as the scriptures say, of the relationship between Christ and His Church. But but for our purposes, this uh, this union, this two becoming one, I think is important. Uh, a lot of people would say, well, the Bible teaches a sexist view of men and women. Women are are to be servants of men, or whatever. And I would say, you know, that's not that's not true. There is order within a a marriage, there's the head and the helpmate kind of ordering, but their relationship is complementary. You know, the two becoming one, I would say, this is kind of the Jerry Maguire moment. You complete me, you know, that, that kind of thing. So it's not, a, it's not a sexist thing by any means. It's a beautiful thing that men and women are different, but they're made complementary. Uh, and this is a beautiful thing. I've sometimes... I don't remember if I mentioned this already, but you know, described it like a ballroom dancing. It's a beautiful, graceful thing when you see each partner doing their proper steps, so to speak. You know, one has to lead and one has to do the other part. I, I don't know ballroom dancing very well, so you're going to have to forgive my terminology. I might have massacred that. But uh, <laughs> I, I think people want to see video of this. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, so if both of them try to do the same part it becomes not graceful, not beautiful. In fact, it's a train wreck. And I think most people would like that kind of thing. You know, they'll watch videos right. online right. to see somebody stepping all over each other. But And it's funny. But the point is it's not beautiful. It's not by design. So uh, God has given marriage by design. And it obviously, uh, it always works best when it is according to his design. So Mark chapter 10, Jesus said, the two become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. So I'm not going to get into the the physical aspect of of that, but I, I do think that it's it's note notable to say that men and women even physiologically are compatible. So by definition that would rule out people of the same sex in a certain sense, which we'll get to in a little while. But I just want to show that there's a consistency in thought whether we're talking about the positive or the negative side of of marriage here, the Bible is consistent. Romans chapter 7, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So when we talk about marriage, we talk about it being a lifelong union between one man and one woman. So some people have talked about, you know, polygamy. What, you know, there's polygamy in the Bible. What is, is that right or is that wrong? And God seems to allow it at some places in the Old Testament. And yet we know that polygamy is not practiced by Christians today. So therefore, you know, what, what gives? What can we say about it? And I guess I'll say that here. Yes, we acknowledge that in the Old Testament there were uh, men who had multiple wives and we're, we're not going to defend that, that it seemed as though God permitted it. Although, I think when we go back to Genesis and we see the very first marriage, God did not bring three Eves to Adam. He brought one woman, and the two become one. The two become one, not three become one or four become one or whatever it might be. It's two become one. So, the other side of it is that Remember, as Paul would say, marriage is a great mystery. It's a picture of Christ and the church. So, obviously, we don't say it's Christ and the churches, polygamous, plural. We say Christ and his church, singular. So, again, by design, God's design, one man, one woman, a lifelong Union And if one person dies, then yes, the marriage is essentially over and 
uh, that person is free to remarry or not as they see fit. But the point there is they're not sinning if they do. Genesis chapter 24, and they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So there the point is it should be entered into with mutual consent. Nobody should be married against their will. Now, I know there are cultures where people have arranged marriages. And some people might ask, well, is that wrong? Is there something wrong with arranged marriages? Um, interestingly enough, those marriages tend to have a lower divorce rate. If, I, if I'm not mistaken, and I know that I heard the statistics on this at one point, and I was, my mind was blown. I was like, how can that be? If people are, they have arranged marriages, and yet they have longer lasting marriages. They don't have the divorce rate that we do here in the United States. How can that be? And I think it's because people enter these marriages understanding that marriage will take work. That it's not just something, you know, we're on this emotional high, oh, we're so in love, and then, you know, soon they don't feel that way, and oh, it's over, it's over. No, you understood, this is this is going to be the person I'm going to be married to, and I'm going to make it work, and both parties see that. So uh, I think that's part of the reason why you see a lower divorce rate there. But the point is, is even there, from what I've talked to people who, who have been from cultures that have arranged marriages, even there, it's not against their will. The you know, parents might say, well, our son's going to marry your daughter or whatever. But if they, if they decide they're incompatible, they get to meet first or whatever, they can say, no, we don't want this. But So anyways, there's this, this idea of entering marriage willingly. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So as Christians, uh, we want our marriages sanctified by the word of God and prayer. They're, that's why we do it within our churches. We get married by a pastor or a priest. And for good reason, uh, obviously, again, we, we know that this is a divine estate. It's something that God has established. It's God-pleasing. We want him to bless our marriages, and so we, we do it there. But that does not mean that somebody who goes down to the justice of the peace and gets married there is somehow in an illegitimate marriage or that it's not recognized by the church because certainly it is a a legal marriage and we recognize it as such. So we're not saying that Christians have to have their marriages done in church, but generally they do because they want their marriage sanctified by the word of God and prayer. They want to start it off right. And that's why we, we tend to have church weddings. But even there, we recognize it's kind of a weird situation because at that point, the pastor becomes an agent of the state. So he's got to sign, you know, state marriage licenses and certificates and so on and return them to the authorities. And basically, the state gives them the right to do this and says, when you are acting in this way, you are acting on behalf of the state. And that obviously can sometimes be messy especially when the state starts to redefine what marriage is and they want to make you do what they think is right. That's where the church has had some struggles in recent years and I think probably will have to wrestle with some of these issues even more and more as we see time going on. So, Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Uh, so what is this really about? And I think we talked about this in a previous episode, but obviously Adam lived in a garden paradise. He lived in the presence of the Lord. Everything was good. God had said it was good. But there's something about man being alone that's not good. When we looked at the rest of the creatures that God had created, they had the ability to reproduce and multiply. So you know, this aloneness of Adam also means you know, that there's not a, the way for mankind to multiply and fill the earth. So sexual reproduction is by definition part of the design for marriage. Now that does not mean that every marriage ends with children or you know some people are not able to have children. They still have a marriage, absolutely. But by design, it's part of the equation. It's, it's the proper place for the begetting of children. It's one of the fruits and blessings of marriage. So any marriage that by definition physiologically cannot, you'd see again, that goes against God's design. 
not uh, normal functioning men and women who can't have children. That's something different. So certainly we, we, we feel bad for people who have those issues. Uh, so along those same lines, St. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 7, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So the point there is marriage is the proper confines for um, sexual intimacy, and that's the only proper place for it, but it's also a, a God-given gift for marriage to, to have that uh, blessing from one another. It's not dirty or uh, an ugly thing. It's, it's a natural, beautiful part of marriage. And as a result of that, obviously, we think about Genesis chapter 1. God said, bless them and said, be fruitful and multiply. So the begetting of children is a blessing from the Lord. And in fact, it's that blessing from chapter, Genesis chapter 1, be fruitful and multiply, that continues to ripple down through the centuries to this very day. People are able to have children. They have children. This is always a blessing from God. And it's because of God's blessing on marriage that people are able to do that. Yeah. Sometimes, uh, like I said, there are, there are reasons that people are not able to do that, and that doesn't make them any less blessed or any, any uh, less of husband and wife or anything like that. But Ephesians chapter 5, verses 24 and 25 as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up to her, for her. Now, obviously, this is one of those controversial passages. Oh, if you preach on it, oh, people will be so offended. It's so sexist. Paul just hated women, obviously. I mean, can't you tell? Uh, no. Remember what we've already talked about today. We've, we've talked about the order that God has established. We said, in the family, who's in charge? The parents or the children? No, the parents are. In the school, who's in charge? The students or the teacher? Are? Well, the teacher is. In society, who's in charge? Every man for themselves, or is their government given for our good and order? Yeah. Even within the church, it's not for everybody to teach. There's order. And it's not surprising then also within uh, marriage, which is a reflection of the relationship between Christ and the church, that there is order. I mean, so let's 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 break it down to the relationship with Christ and the church. Does the church get to tell Jesus what to do? No. I, I was hoping you wouldn't get that one wrong, Lauren. <laughs> so, no, obviously that would be ludicrous. That'd be a ridiculous statement. Obviously, Christ is the head of the church. So when when Paul speaks this way about husbands being the head and wives submitting to their husbands, this is not servitude. This is not, oh, oh, yes, master, I will obey whatever you say, master, uh, the way people exaggerate, you know, and that's the easiest way to attack a position is if you exaggerate it and then attack that position, right? But th there's order. That's all, This is all that this verse is really talking about. Yes, the, the man is to be the head, the wife, the helpmate, but that doesn't imply domination. It does not imply inferiority in, in terms of value or love. In fact, when we look at the relationship with Christ and the church, and men are told husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, I would say that's the, the much more burdensome of the two descriptives that are given there for husbands and wives. You know, submitting to your husband, well, let's just say, let's just give him the benefit of the doubt. And obviously, this is not possible, but let's just say that you wives, you had a husband who loved you in the same manner, the same extent that Christ loved the church. That would, be, that would be pretty remarkable, yes? Yeah. You don't have to answer on behalf of the wives there, Lauren. Well, you know, I <laughs> play the role. Okay, okay. Uh, but yeah, obviously, if, if a man were to do that, what wife in their right mind would, would have a problem saying, okay, well, he obviously looks out for my best interest. He only wants what's best for me. In fact, he puts me before himself because that's, a, that's a good, what Christ did for the church, right? He even gave up his life for her. So, you know, I think if, if a man were doing that, no woman would have a problem with that, just as the church really should have no problem submitting to Christ. Although today in our society, there's plenty of churches and Christians who say, I don't like what you said there. Therefore, I'm just not going to follow that. Or some people have explained this passageway saying, oh, Paul's just sexist. We just know he, he hates women and therefore whatever. We can toss out that part. We don't have to listen to it. 
But the point is, is this is no different than any other avenue or aspect of our lives. God has established order and orders for our good. He knows how things work best. This is not a bad thing. It does not mean that a man can dominate a woman or that somehow he's more important or anything like that. It just means that there's order. And when you look at the burden that falls on the man, you know, love your wife says Christ loved the church. That means you put her first. You don't think about yourself at all. You don't say what's in this for me. You say, what can I do for you? That's, that's a difficult thing. How many men do you think can honestly say that they've done that? Not many. You can answer for the guys there. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're right. So, I mean, I think if we're going to pick on one part and say, well, that's terrible, look at the other part and say, well, that's just as terrible. I mean, what, what man can love their wives the way Christ loved the church? Certainly that's an ideal to shoot for. But as we look at this commandment, oh, oh, we failed pretty miserably at doing that, right? So as we look at marriage or the sixth commandment, which says you should not commit adultery, so far we've said that marriage is a holy estate having been instituted by God himself, that it's the lifelong union of one man and one woman, that marriage is entered into by mutual consent and promise, that Christians desire to have their marriage ceremony sanctified with the word of God and prayer, and therefore have it performed by the pastor of their church, usually. Uh, the purpose of marriage is mutual helpfulness and companionship, the prevention of fornication, and the procreation and rearing of children, that married people are to love and honor each other, a husband is to selflessly love his wife, and a wife is to love and honor her husband as her God-given head. Now, now that we've talked about marriage, let's get back to the commandment itself. You shall not commit adultery. So obviously here we would see sins against marriage, but not exclusively. There could be other sins that would also fall under the sixth commandment. So what might those be? Let's take a look at some passages. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus said, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So, divorce is not according to God's will. Uh, it, it is always a dissolution of something that God has brought together, and it's not easily done. You say, well, and yeah, it is pretty easy. In our society, all you got to do is sign a piece of paper, and it's pretty much done. No-fault divorce, it's real easy. Uh, but you're, you're ripping something apart that is not so easily ripped apart, and a union that goes deeper than a mere paper contract. And so there are also spiritual implications and so on and so forth. So uh, obviously divorce is not something that God himself designed or endorsed. It is sinful. Uh, however, we see in Matthew 19, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So the, the divorce is often uh, accompanied with the sin of adultery. But here we see an exception, except for sexual immorality. If, if a, one spouse cheats on the other, a person may have legitimate grounds for contracting a divorce. doesn't mean they have to. A lot of marriages have suffered through that. But remember that there is a, there's a trust there, a bond, that once that trust is broken, it's very hard to reconnect. It's not impossible. But in the case of marital unfaithfulness, that person has committed, they, they've joined themselves to somebody else. The two becoming one is now, that, that idea has been broken by the entrance of another person. So there are a couple of exceptions to this idea of divorce. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. We call this malicious desertion. Uh, here we have the case of an unbeliever. Somebody says, well, you know, I don't, I can't be married to a Christian. I just don't agree with your Christian faith, and therefore I'm out of here. Uh, obviously, divorce is still wrong, but in that case, the, the person who has been wronged has the right to even contract the divorce and to remarry at a certain point there, too. So we, we don't say that all divorce is necessarily sinful, but obviously, like any relationship, there's always sin involved. And uh, certainly divorce in and of itself is not right or proper according to the scriptures. We did see that in the Old Testament. Divorce was allowed. And it was because of hardness of heart, Jesus would say. It was because of sin. You know, divorce came into the, into the realm of marriage or the world. 
rather, you know, in the book of Hebrews, it says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So uh, here we're under the sixth commandment, we're talking about sexual immorality. And so, as we said before, the proper confines for sexual intimacy is within marriage, not before, not apart from, not as we see fit. Uh, that is what the Bible says. It's not what our society says, obviously. Matthew chapter 5, uh, well, First well, Corinthians 6, Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. So we'll get to some of the specifics of that in just a bit without getting, you know, graphic, obviously. But, you know, I think everybody knows what, what would be included under that heading, although it seems that there's a lot of debate in our society, right? Matthew chapter 5. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So again, Jesus cuts through the clutter and says, just in case you think you've kept this commandment perfectly, guess what? It's a problem of the heart, just like all sin. And if you even looked at somebody lustfully, uh, you have committed adultery with them in your heart. And so, you know, certainly everybody, nobody gets off the hook here on the sixth commandment. First Corinthians chapter 6, St. Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Uh, those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God there. And he includes a, a, a number of sexual sins. Obviously, he mentions sexually immoral, which is a broad term. The adulterers, uh, which we could, we could say those um, acting outside of marriage or extramarital or whatever. But he also includes homosexuality. So in, in our society, there's a big you know, debate. Well, does the Bible even condemn homosexuality? And what's wrong as long as people love each other. What's so wrong with it? Doesn't God want us to love? Yeah, God wants us to love, but love in truth, right? Not love our sin. So if we're being honest, there's plenty of sins that we have in our lives that we really like. That's why we hold on to them. We love them, in fact. It doesn't make them right. Just because we love our sin doesn't mean it's good or acceptable or okay. It is, uh, you know, dangerous to us. And so same thing with sexual sins. And I'm not going to just pick on homosexuality, but that is the one that our society has sort of singled out as, as the hot-button topic. Obviously, all sins against the Sixth Commandment are just as wrong. So we would never say, it's okay for a man to cheat on his wife. Uh, you know, as long as he loved that other woman, it's fine. You know, I'm glad God wants him to be happy, right? No, it's still wrong. So there's a, there's a number of sins included under the Sixth Commandment, not just the one that everybody wants to focus on. But the Bible does say it's wrong. So Ephesians 5, St. Paul says, But sexual immorality in all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. So, I mean, yeah. is Paul saying you can't even tell dirty jokes? He says, well, that's not fitting. You know, it's not proper. It's suggestive. It's, it's going places where we're just better off not going. Now, we're not drawing a line in the sand saying, well, if you say this word, that's a bad joke. If you say this, you know, if you don't say it, it's okay. I mean, obviously, there's a, an idea, a principle here that if, you, if you're wondering, did I break that? Chances are, if you have to question. Probably, you yeah. <laughs> You probably did. Yeah. But Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, keep yourself pure. And again, pure is a pretty general statement. But, you know, the, the idea is that... Uh, your time, your energies are better spent on things that are going to build up and that are, are God-pleasing than uh, dabbling in things that you know are, are bad. We pray, lead us not into temptation. And yet we lead ourselves into temptation all, all the time, especially with regard to the Sixth Commandment. In our society, like I said, it's every television show makes these things acceptable. They make it funny. Uh, they make it normal. It, then people have access to all sorts of ungodly things on the internet. Uh, so these things are promoted and encouraged, and our children are bombarded with these things, you know, constantly as well. So 
you know, we should pray that God would keep us chaste, that he would keep our hearts pure, as David prayed in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And we should guard against the lustful sins, against the sixth commandment. And uh, as we as read in Genesis 39, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So obviously we don't want to do that. As Christians, we know this is not right. We want to do it as God-pleasing. Do we do it perfectly? No, but certainly there's a danger when we when we indulge in these these behaviors, especially knowingly and willingly. Uh, willful, unrepentant sin is dangerous to us because it it drives the Holy Spirit from us, drives life from us. So there are sins of weakness. Obviously, we all have them, but to to indulge in this and say, well, you know, God knows that I, you know. He knows my heart, and he'll let me have this one thing. You know, there's a, there's always a danger involved. So, again, as we've talked about the sixth commandment, what we should we not do, and what should we do according to the commandment? So, we should not break the marriage vow by unfaithfulness, by desertion, or unscriptural divorce. In cases of adultery or malicious desertion, the innocent party may protect himself or herself by getting a divorce. We should not use God's gift of sex outside of marriage. We should not defile ourselves with impure thoughts, desires, words, and deeds. On the other hand, we should lead a chaste and decent life in thoughts, desires, words, and deeds. And we should flee and avoid all opportunity for sexual sin. So that's where we're going to leave off with the sixth commandment today. Uh, In our next episode, we will pick up, obviously, with the seventh through the Tenth Commandments, and then we'll finish the, you know, our portion on the Law or the Ten Commandments. So we do hope that you'll join us again next time. For Under the Oaks, this is Pastor Trent Sari, and I'm Lauren Thompson. We'll see you next time. See ya. A new chair? Well, I had it too high, and then I lowered it, and then I felt like it was too low. (laughs)